RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of The Trek Files is brought to you by the Eagle Moss Shop, home of official Star Trek collectibles, including rare and highly prized Starship models from all Star Trek TV series and related productions. Use the promo code MISSIONLOG for 10% off of your order at shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash MISSIONLOG. The Trek Files, Season 3, Episode 14, Sam Peoples Notes on the Cage, April 6, 1965. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans, you background fans, you canonistas, I say that lovingly. And, of course, all you Star Trek historians, otherwise known as you Trekophiles, spelled with an F. We've got a special, special show today, really looking back at the roots of Star Trek, the roots of Gene Roddenberry with one of his best buds and colleagues, Sam Peoples. And our guest today is someone who knew him directly. And I'll be right back with her after you... As every week, take a look at our documents we're talking about right at our site on facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Take a listen to a sample from that document, and we'll be right back. In one segment, I would suggest that the existence of number one be threatened because she's an illegal cybernetic adaptation. The entire ship's crew fights and connives to save her. Even the captain, who is actually aware of her as an individual, and may even have certain emotional responses not normally bestowed upon a machine. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hey fans of the Eagle Moss official Star Trek starships, be it the original collection of five, six-inch starships, or the larger Star Trek Discovery collection, or the even larger XL editions. For those of you looking to complete your collections, or simply purchase single starships for yourselves or as gifts, well, your ships have come in, literally. Yes, the Eagle Moss shop is open and ready to do business, and listeners of the track files can enjoy an extra 10% off selected models. Here's what you do. Go to shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash mission log, and just take a look at the variety of ships waiting for you there. Many of them are shop exclusives. I can't believe some of these. There's Rick Sternbach's early concept model for the USS Voyager. Uh, there's the now legendary interface USS Defiant from the original series episode, The Tholian Web. <laughs> and it glows in the dark. Yes, beautifully. And yeah. there's the Phase 2 concept enterprise. It's my favorite. The USS Titan. I mean, look, just look around and you're sure to find a ship, or five, Yes. <laughs> that scream out, buy me, I'm yours. Your, your shelves are looking empty, so uh, that's <laughs> what you need to do. Now, of course, these ships are officially authorized by CBS Studios. Each and every model is die-cast, hand-painted, and comes with a display-based stand, plus an in-depth magazine featuring exclusive artwork and highlights the ship's history, design, and place in Star Trek lore. So to order, engage at shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash 
slash mission log and enter the promo code mission log. That's all one word, M-I-S-S-I-O-N-L-O-G, at checkout and receive an extra 10% off your order. Yes, I know the promo code is mission log. We'll throw those guys a bone. <laughs> all right. So you know where to go, shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash mission log. And thanks again to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. Oh, Trekophiles. Yes, I'm so excited this week. We've got a wonderful document, and we have a wonderful guest here. We're talking about Sam Peoples, who, yes, of course, wrote the second pilot script, Where No Man Has Gone Before, also one of the animated series. But he plays a much bigger role in uh, Gene Roddenberry's life, and also he plays a big part in the life of someone who was close to Gene Roddenberry, close to the roots and some of the best Star Trek ever, and close to my guest this week. I'm loving it that I can welcome back to the show the great Dorothy Fontana. Dorothy. Hi. Nice Hi. to be here. It's so great to have you back. And, of course, if I... If there was ever anyone that needed no introduction, it would be you for our audience. But I do want to remind everyone that Dorothy was Gene Roddenberry's personal assistant, an aspiring writer who became story editor on the original series, and then she was associate producer and story editor for the animated series and uh, helped kick off the next generation in both of those roles, writing the pilot script for Farpoint, uh, Counter at Farpoint, as well as all the great, especially the great Vulcan building shows <laughs> on the original series and many more. But Dorothy, it's so great to have you back with us. Thank you. It's and nice to, to be here. And to talk about Sam Peoples, who was someone very close to your life, and again, someone who is in the mix of people that affected Gene and the development of Star Trek, and I'm I'm glad to have this chance to ask you to. Can you just tell us a little bit about Sam Peoples and his life, and how you how you why he's why why your lives intersected? Well, Sam originally uh, was uh, in the military, World War II. Uh, he became a captain, and he was in radio communications. I believe that. He said that uh, he controlled all the communications on the West Coast for hmm. the Army bases, uh, planes in flight, etc. Uh, after the war, he became a writer, and he began picking up uh, assignments on early Westerns and things like this, that uh, shows that were coming back after the war when there was not much television except the Dumont Channel. Remember that one? <laughs> uh, uh, I went out to California after my uh, college graduation. I got an associate in arts at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey, and it was as executive secretary. Um, I decided to come out to California and uh, see if I couldn't get a job out here because this is where all the filming was, and I had gotten interested in film and television. Uh, so I came out in September of 1959. In a week, I got a job at Review Studios, which had just taken over Universal Studios. in uh, Well, it's now called Universal City, but it was technically North Hollywood then. And I was in the typing pool, and I worked there for about a month, and I saw an ad up on the board for... Uh, jobs, and it was a production secretary for the associate producer, I'm sorry, for the producer and associate producer of a new show called Overland Trail. I went and interviewed with it, and it was Sam Peoples and Frank Price, who later became a very, very big figure mm -hmm. in uh, television. Um, and I got the job as uh, Sam's and Frank's secretary. So um, we started on Overland Trail, and approximately... November of 1959, and uh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but Overland and Overland Trail 
it started, we don't remember it really well because it didn't last very long, right? No, it was only about 12 or 13 episodes. It starred Doug McClure and William Bendix. And it was about stage coaching. Uh, so Let me guess, it was a Western. Of course. Because this is the 50s and 60s, right? And there were lots of Westerns. Yeah. Uh, it only went for, as I said, about 12, 13 episodes. And then we had a writer's strike starting in February of 1960. And ultimately it lasted until June, as I recall. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Sam Peebles discovered that I had been writing stories since I was 11 years old. And I used to write, oddly enough, horror science fiction stories starring all my friends <laughs> as short stories. And uh, I had gotten interested in television and a lot of scripts were crossing my desk, so I wanted to try it. And Sam said, all right, you know this show, The Tall Man. It was about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, uh-huh. played by Barry Sullivan and Clue Gulliger. And it was a half-hour Western at the time, uh, which was not uncommon. Uh, there were a number that were half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, half-hour dramas. Half-hour dramas. Yeah. Uh, Western action, etc. Mm-hmm. And Sam said, uh, if you bring me a good story, since you know the show, I will buy it. And when the strike was over, I went in with an idea, and he said, I'll buy it. So that was uh, early in uh, roughly June of 1960, and I sold my first story to television. Uh, the guest star... On the episode was Leonard Nimoy. No. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I went down to the set and, and chatted with him. He was very nice to a newbie writer. And uh, we had been friends ever since. Uh, and this was late 1960? Well, it was not mid-1960. Okay. Mid-1960. Okay. Right. And, uh, well, good on Sam for taking a chance. Was he that way? Did he give young people a chance? Yes, he did. First time. He did. He did. Yeah. It was, uh, we did uh, two seasons of The Tall Man. That extended into, like, 1961. Then Sam decided uh, he didn't want to do series anymore. He wanted to do a movie. And so he wound up getting a, an, a, a script assignment for a movie at uh, MGM. And he said, well, you want to come with me? And I yeah, sure. Uh, so I was his production secretary as he prepared the script, wrote the script. And I don't remember what it was anymore. Um but uh, it never did sell. I was going to say, I don't see it credited, so no, it sounds it like a, sell. a no-go. And he decided, well, I don't want to stay at MGM any longer. I'm going to go somewhere else. And I decided I'd rather stay here for a while mm-hmm. uh, because I could get a steady job out the studio somewhere. you know. And I went into the script pool there and uh, went for about a month. I had the wonderful experience of reading the original Psycho script by Robert Block. Oh, and, you know, as we were typing it, uh-huh. and uh, it was just marvelous. And uh, I later met Robert Block because he was a friend of Sam Peebles, and so Bob became a good friend too. Um, but I didn't meet him at that time. I just read the script, and then and, I saw and later used on Star Trek. Yes. Yeah. 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 But uh, but yeah. Uh, then I saw one of those jobs up on the job board. It was uh, for the lieutenant which was a new series coming mm-hmm. on about uh, the Marine Corps. They were just starting up, but they wanted a production secretary for the associate producer, Del Reisman, who later became president of our guild, etc. I knew Del till he died. Um, and I went in and applied, and I got the job. And another young lady was Gene Roddenberry's production secretary. But uh, I, I did a lot of jobs there, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it was it was always great. Uh, but uh, now this was, again... <laughs> Starting in the summer-ish, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and we got we revved up to, for the lieutenant, starring Gary Lockwood and Robert Vaughn, who both of whom were great. And 
along about late November. Yeah, late November. Jean Roddenberry's secretary was suddenly stricken with a very bad appendicitis attack. And she was out for a month and a half. It was that bad. Mm-hmm. So Jean said, all right, you're filling in. You're, you're going to be my secretary. and We'll get somebody out of the pool to work for Dell. And that's how I get to know Jean Roddenberry better because I was working mm-hmm. closely with him every day. And uh, On the lieutenant. Yeah, on the lieutenant. But his secretary came back. I went back to working for Dell. And uh, we, that was a Marine Corps story. And oh yeah, <laughs> no wait, no, no. This is 1963. It was November. Oh yeah. And I was on the phone with our Marine uh, sergeant, who was one of our advisors, and he said, "I have to hang up now." I said, "What's wrong?" He said, "The president's been shot." And I went tearing through Dell's office and into Gene Roddenberry's, yelling, "Turn on the TV set! The president's been shot!" And we were glued to the TV set all day long as that story unfolded, mm-hmm. and. The ironic thing was it was a rainy day in Los Angeles, and our gang, our crew, was out on the back lot filming a, a burial scene. Hmm. It was just so ironic. But later on, after we finished the lieutenant, then we found out it was not going to go anymore. This is now early 1964. Gene um, uh, Roddenberry called me into his office and handed me about 15 pages of uh, essay, if you will, <laughs> uh, and said, read that. Tell me what you think. Okay, because um, by then I had already sold at least a half a dozen things to television, mm-hmm. uh, two stories and the rest for teleplays, uh, including one for Shotgun Slade, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So that was so as far as your career was going, that was mounting your own brand and getting to sell, right. but you still felt the need for a day job. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the thing that he handed me was titled Star Trek, <laughs> and. I came back the next day, and I said to him, I really like this. Who plays Spock? And he pushed a picture of Leonard Nimoy across the desk at me. Leonard had done a guest spot on the lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's Spock. There never was anybody else. There have been stories out there of other people being considered. No one was ever considered for Spock except Leonard Nimoy. Who you met on your first script. Right, it's just the, exactly. these, these circles in time are just amazing. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so but... Back to Sam Peoples. Sam and Gene were in a close orbit, too, and still remained yes, in touch. Well, they, they were pretty active writers, both of them. They had very big careers going on. Uh, until they began creating their own series, they were writing individual mm-hmm. episodes for other series and uh, being nominated for Writers Guild Awards and things like this. So they knew each other. And, um, yes, he wrote a lot of Western. Right. So did Gene. Rifleman Bonanza and his Six on Overland Trail that he produced. On oh, yes. Oh, and, uh, yeah. A whole host of uh, scripts. They yes. were busy. But again, like Gene, was had his eye on doing his own series. Yes. And later on, did uh, after The Tall Man, did um, created uh, Custer right. and Lancer, which actually went. I wrote Certainly. Lancer later on. And you had a Lancer. Okay, yeah. there we go. Uh, small town. <laughs> but what's our document of the week here that's really historic, and again, we know that uh, Sam and Gene were in close orbit enough yes. for Gene to turn to him to do his second pilot, which was really like a tweak. We all know that, yes, we recast the captain, made some other tweaks, did some physical changes, visual changes, shuffled all the characters, you know, network-driven and all that. But um, the pickup to go to a second pilot, which was pretty rare, right? Mm, Yes. Maybe even unprecedented at the time. Uh, Gene turns to uh, to Sam to write this memo that we've got this week, um, and you said it came from it came from Sam. So yes. it's not that you typed this one, no. maybe, but you said you probably filed it. 
Yep. <laughs> do you remember reading this or uh, or at least discussing it with Jean? Or? Off the top of my head, I do not. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was going on uh, earlier, before Jean even started the first pilot for Star Trek, he asked me to get a lot of science fiction anthology books and, and read uh, you know, uh, stories that we might adapt. Mm-hmm. And I knew Sam Peebles had the, the biggest library in town of science fiction stories. He, he knew all the science fiction writers. And uh, so I borrowed about 20 books from Sam and read, <laughs> read all the short stories and capsulized, you know, capsulized them, uh, gave them to Gene for consideration. Uh, none of them were ever bought. Uh, but I read a lot of Sam's books, and I told Gene this, that this is where I got them. So he knew that Sam was into science fiction. Mm-hmm. And when it came time for not that just second a hor- pilot... Not just a horse guy. Yeah, not just a horse guy. Gene <laughs> um, turned to Sam to say... Give me some ideas on this. What do you think? And ran the pilot for him, of course, as which is where these notes came from. Mm, okay. And it's, it's just as a document itself, and as you were yeah. saying, he's got three or four points here. He's even got some story ideas. Yes. And off the top, um, as you said, the only one that really seemed to filter through immediately was talking about the computer right. and number one's right. solution. Do you think that number? Do you think that number one was... Too ahead of its time to have been accepted by a 60s audience and all that. The, the nominal reason why she's not back from the... I mean, well, part of the, the subtext was that the network did not want him to hire Majel. I don't think it was Majel in particular. I think it was they didn't want a woman in a strong lead mm-hmm. position. And I thought, as Sam says in this memo, that uh, the actress concerned did a very good job, which she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she wasn't wanted by the network. Desi Lou was all right with it. I mean, it was headed up by Lucille Ball, for Christ's sake. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the network didn't want it. But Sam's suggestion about the computer voice, and Majel had a very good voice. She did a lot of voice acting on Star Trek and on other shows, as well as appearing as an actress. Uh, so she became the voice of the ship, and I thought it worked. Uh, Sam describes in this a, uh, that she, she's, she's a living entity. Uh, that's, uh, uh, she's aware of her symmetrical beauty and constantly <laughs> affecting improvements in her appearance. But we never did see her. It was just the voice. But right. that voice could be sympathetic, it could be angry, it could be insulting when it wanted to, etc. Uh, so we had uh, an extra character that you never saw but you knew. Right. You knew that voice. And the relationship to the captain, she was in love with the captain. Of course she was. Now, the, the, the voice only as an entity has, was a trope that wound up being used in all kinds. Of, my mother, the car with Anne Southern, yes. to be obscure yeah. and bizarre. Yes. But people yes. remember uh, William Daniels on, on Kit, yes. right? The, right? The voice of that. I mean, and then our computer voices along on Star Trek yes. through the ages. And there was the moment, really as a, a minor story point on the original series, where talked about the the computer had been given a hyper feminine personality yes. and but Kirk didn't like it and had Spock uh, take it down a notch. Yeah. Oh the feminine repair technicians on <laughs> yeah on Signet. Well that's that's right, but what the upshot here is that they found a role for Majel doing it. It was a little more automatic, right? The original series computer was a little more of an automaton than than as it became later. Yes, I would say that definitely. We moved into the. Yes. But what? A, so there's one thing. So, but he's got some other ideas here. He's names a, a young cadet, 
which is nothing new to Star Trek. They've had impetuses to have all cadet shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wesley Crusher later on kind yes. of fills this gap. We have that that feeling of a, of a youth character and, and some of the situations you can get into where they're at odds. He's kind of the antithesis of a Wesley Crusher, but he's a little bit of a rebel. Mm-hmm. It's it's 64 here, and we don't know exactly where the 60s are going to go yet, But which I guess is what led to... We did get Chekhov, who wasn't a rebel, and who, who but that that cadet edge, right? Yes, yes. Uh, do you remember any of the, the genesis of... You were talking about what was going on with the, the 60s, if people need a memory check here. Well, the Beatles became very hot. Uh, in music, of course, and appearances. And up to that point, we had only had a kind of a nondescript character uh, who appeared time after time, but he really had no personality. And then, of course, there was George Takei at the helm, who did have a definite personality. Uh, and Roddenberry started thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, the Beatles, why don't we get a young guy like that, with that hairdo? Mm-hmm. And he becomes our, our pilot, our navigator. And that's where Walter came from. Uh, he didn't have the long hair at first. He had to wear a wig. Right. And then he grew his hair out, and, and he became Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> but you were talking about, off mic, you were talking about being very familiar. You, you were in England before yes, uh, the Beatles Yes, I had been there in 63 uh, when I had a break. And um, I uh, heard about the Beatles. I, I heard them perform on radio, and I saw them on television there. And... Um, it's a funny story. I was standing kind of around where their studio was, and I was standing next to a policeman waiting to cross the street, and I heard this racket going down the street. It was several streets away. I said, what, what is that? And this gentleman, the policeman, said, oh, that's the Beatles, man. <laughs> oh, okay. I, people were chasing them. And I said, oh, I, I, I've heard of them. He said, they're coming to the United States soon. We think it's to pay you back for all that spam you sent us during the war. <laughs> <laughs> That's great," said the man from the uh, older generation. Yes. Well, didn't you say you saw them live? Yes, at, at the Hollywood Bowl when they played mm-hmm. here in 1964. And uh, I, the minute I heard they were going to be in Hollywood, uh, it was it was arranged by Bob Eubanks. That whole right. Hollywood Bowl thing was arranged by Bob Eubanks, and his, his, their whole tour all over California, and I think all over the United States. And uh, the minute I heard they were going to be at the Hollywood Bowl, I was down there the next morning at 6.30 to get a, a ticket, or t- actually two tickets, one for me and my friend. And when we were at the performance, I was finding our seats. I, I turned around, and here's my younger brother, who was in his teens then and going to Hollywood High. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, the Hollywood Bowl invited all the Hollywood High students to come and usher so they could see the concert for free. Wow. Ain't that great? That is great. Yep. <laughs> it's a mark of the time. Um, and we're talking about Star Trek and Sam Peoples in the pilot era, but those are that's an amazing story. That's a, I just I'm my, I'm slack jawed here listening. <laughs> well, that's where Chekhov came from. That's where Chekhov came from. But again, Sam is not off the mark here, thinking that a youth aspect. Now, one yes. thing in here I do want to get to is this interesting paragraph, and even on our original copy from Gene's files, Gene's obviously circled it here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where Sam is talking about the aspect of religion. Yes. Um, where he just, uh, and we think about Gene's thoughts, right? Uh, I mean, how did that, we're talking about the paragraph here, one of the most intriguing questions that space exploration will face, and probably never truly answer, is that of religion. 
The Holy Bible, of course, implies that God is the same on every world, which is a, that's a question, a leap right there that a lot of people don't like to Wouldn't make. Wouldn't necessarily take. Then or now. But he goes through talking about uh, basically God and religion through an earth-based uh, filter, especially through a Christian yes. filter, to wind up with this statement about uh, we could even have a story where you're on an alien world and we find uh, an artifact in the shape of a cross. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, and, and uh, Jean had circled that. What do you, how do you, how does that strike you reading that now? Well, Sam was not a deeply religious man, but I think he considered every aspect of storytelling, and this was one that would be interesting to science fiction people. Uh, to, to our audience and to the people writing it. Uh, what about God? Mm-hmm. Especially in uh, an atmosphere where you are in your own environment, but you're visiting alien planets. What are, what are those other worlds? What do, what do those people believe? Do, do they think the same way we do? And apparently there's one planet which does. <laughs> um, Somehow. But yeah. Uh, I don't think Gene, he circled it and thought about it, but he didn't give it too much thought, really, ultimately, because I think he felt that we might run into a Christian block, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, that people might raise up uh, big objections for us doing a a very uh, biblical-type story. Sam suggests one, well, simply dealing with the the, the, uh, uh, Enterprise's own chaplain, and his fears mm-hmm. and, and uh, doubts, and then discovery on an alien world of indisputable evidence of the knowledge of God and Christ, an artifact in the shape of a cross. That would, could have been a very interesting story. But I think Gene had some fears about venturing into that story. Right. Simply because of the possible objections, not necessarily from Desi Lu, but, but from uh, NBC, from audience, etc. And he just chose not to go there. So the chapel that we saw in Bounce of Terror, right. the only time, yeah. that was meant to be a very lightweight. We never saw it again. Yeah. So that, what was the, do you remember any discussion around that at the time? No, um, I don't. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we saw it, but it was a very light touch. Yeah. yeah. Right? No, nothing, Austin. No, nothing. Well, on, on most uh, ships at sea, for instance, there's usually a chapel mm-hmm. where those who wish to go and pray or, or dedicate themselves or whatever, may do so. And there's no objection from the ship's officers or anything like that. You, yes, of course you're free to do that. So having a chapel on the Enterprise was not terribly unusual, even though we didn't necessarily go there again. Mm-hmm. It would be expected, yes, a ship like that would have a, a chapel, of course. Right, right. So, I mean, Gene very famously was a humanist and, mm-hmm. and kept filtering that that perception of how he wanted his shows to be produced as yes. it went along. Yes. Um, Wow, but that, that doesn't that doesn't strike you as out of the ordinary for Sam to have raised that. No, because as I said, he was a storyteller, and he could see the possibilities of story there, and you know, uh, he just put it on page. Or if he wanted, if Gene asked for his right. thoughts, he gave them. <laughs> well, something happened here because even though none of these literally are what became Gene. Obviously, turned to him for the second pilot, or the yes. one that was chosen. Gene wrote it. There were two or three in contention, and, and where no man wound up being right. Uh, Sam's script, and yes. wound up being chosen. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yes, <laughs> Dorothy, thank you so much for dropping by again. Um, I wasn't expecting the personal Beatles story, <laughs> <laughs> but just letting us know a little bit more about some of the these names, not just names from the past of Star Trek, but the seminal people on on the series and on Gene 
Gene's uh, colleagues and uh, and peers at the time, and yours too. Uh, thank you so much for dropping by again. Thank you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All our documents are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek in Portal 47, that's me, at larrynimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.